This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, where I teach entrepreneurship innovation as well as product design. I'm very happy to welcome to the show my next guest, Aman Advani, who's the co-founder and president of Ministry of Supply. Aman, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So first things first, let me point our listeners to your website, ministryofsupply.com. Just put those three words together, ministryofsupply.com. Um, I'm on, give us the elevator pitch for Ministry of Supply. Yeah, so we actually, we met at a school much like the one that, that you're teaching at. We were at Sloan uh, in, 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 uh, in business school, and we were kind of tinkering around with clothing that, that we didn't like. So we took everything we hated from kind of all of our, our least favorite dress clothes, the dry cleaning, ironing, all that kind of stuff, and put our engineering hats on and said, how can we fix it? And the, uh, the answer kind of lies very much in the technology behind all of your favorite gym clothes. So what we did is we kind of jammed the two together in what we initially called performance professional, a new category of clothing that took all of the best features of your performance gear and baked them into your least favorite dress clothes. So what came out of that, as we stand today, is a company you know, five, six years later that's that's uh, you know based here in Boston still, um, and producing a full line of men's and women's clothes that are kind of travel ready, ready for anything. Uh, you know, has set two Guinness World Records for fastest half marathon in a suit for men and women. Um, it was seven stores across the country and kind of proving the point that, that performance professional is here to stay. All right. I just got to ask, how fast is, what is the world's record for running a half marathon in a suit? That's a good question. So my partner ran it in one twenty four forty one. Oh, that's not and bad. And his, yeah. his now fiance did it in one forty. So she set the women's record. So wow. The, the, the extra fact and all that is that it was a, uh, a power couple has reached it. I think the post records may have been broken since then, but at the time they stood as the uh, fastest half marathon. Wow. Awesome. So, and, and I just got to ask, so you were doing this at, you started this up at, at when you were an MBA student at, at Sloan, was it a course project or was it something you were working on? You knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur and you were working on it, working towards that goal. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a little bit of both. So, you know, I, I came to business school out of consulting and out of an undergrad in engineering with this idea very much in mind. In fact, I had hand-packed prototypes, kind of uh, socks, in fact, that I had cut out the soles and bases of running socks and sewn them into the soles uh, and bases of, uh, uh, you know, a really terrible dress sock. And mm-hmm. by doing so, I created this sock that, you know, is kind of a Franken sock that I would wear to, you know, my consulting gigs and then Monday to Thursday travel. And so when I came to business school, I very much didn't realize what, what was possible uh, in terms of entrepreneurship. I came from Georgia, where at the time, that wasn't really a, a word you used. Um, it's kind of what you did if, if nothing else worked out. Mm-hmm. And I was just super lucky to meet my partners there, who, who were all excited and interested in the idea, particularly Ihan, who also happened to have hand-hacked prototypes, in his case, cutting up old running shirts and sewing them into silhouettes of dress shirts to achieve the, effectively the same outcome. Wow, really cool. All right, so take us back to the first, how you identified, I mean, you, you presumably started with an initial product 
What did you decide the, the, the best initial opportunity was? And tell us about that first product. Yeah, so I think we, we decided, I mean, it was, it was funny because we came up with these hand-to-hand prototypes that, that, that were our, each our own personal pain points, right? We were solving a problem largely at the time for ourselves, and we were hoping that other people had the same issue. And so we decided to launch with the dress shirt, um, one, because Ihan is a better, uh, uh, better with a sewing machine than I was. And two, because it was this great kind of perfect storm of a commodity product that people really valued, people were willing to pay up for, right? If it if it had the right features to it, and it was it was visible, it was on the outside, so you could get this performance professional. You needed the aesthetic of something you could wear to, you know, with jeans untucked or also to a board meeting, you know, tucked in, um, but still packed in all the features of machine washability. Kind of in- I'm on you there. I think we we had a, a technical glitch, so um, Dana will work on 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 getting him back. So the the question I I'm going to just ask it's funny coincidence because I just gave a talk this week in which I used this company Untuck It as an example, and I'm really curious to get from Amin his opinion on the future of that company. It's a company that just raised thirty million dollars from Kleiner Perkins, uh, venture backed. Uh, apparel company in the shirt space, and so um, it's uh, it, it's 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 one of these curiosities. How is it possible to create value in an extremely mature ca- product category like dress shirts? And and so one approach has been you know this Untucket brand, which says, well, we're going to compete on the basis that our shirts are shorter and don't have to be tucked in. Honestly, to me, that seems like a little tenuous of a benefit proposition. And Ministry of Supply has taken a, a different position, which is uh, we're going to do something with performance. Uh, I'm on you back. I am. Yeah, All right. Beautiful. All right. Well, I don't know if you heard my little interlude. I was, I'm going to ask you about. Um, yeah, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's just go right into that question. Seriously, yeah. what's going on with that company? <laughs> you know, I think you, you gave the harsh answer that I I, uh, I won't at all disagree with. At the same time, I do think that kind of, uh, you know, history is more powerful than any of our predictions, right? The right. That, you know, they, they've, they've done something pretty special. And they've caught people's attention and they've jumped onto a trend that's very much in progress. We would call it kind of the wider casualization of, of the where-to-work wardrobe. Yeah. That they've certainly kind of jumped right all, all over. And so there's something to be said about a company who's able to kind of be the first mover in that space. They made a company name that was wildly obvious. And you didn't have to guess on what they did. Right. Um, now, I think it was any, it's anyone's guess as to whether or not the better bet is to take on kind of category creation, long-term value play. Right. Or or on jumping on a trend that's in progress. And there isn't an obvious answer to that. I think the only thing that will tell us that is, uh, is waiting five or ten years to figure it out. Yeah, well, it's a super interesting question. So I'm going to circle back to you guys and say, so so what's your play? What did you do with this dress shirt? You didn't just make it shorter so you couldn't untuck it. That doesn't seem like too defensible yeah. a position. But what did you do that that you feel is defensible? Yeah, yeah you know, I, I will say that one thing in, in, in untucked defense is that nothing in, in apparel is really defensible beyond just the brand identity, right? So there's not a lot of IP in apparel. You know, we just released a heated jacket with machine learning algorithms built into the microchip in the lapel of the jacket. That we can patent, um, but it's rare that we take the time and spend the money to actually put a big IP strategy yeah. together because, the, you know, apparel is the wild, wild west. So that being said, our, our play does have a moat, right? And the brand the brand itself is the moat, and you can't, you know, it's the only thing you really can't copy is can we build trust in this world where people say, you know, I'm, 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 I understand I, all I want to wear is, is my, you know, Nike sweats, and I just want to wear, you know, we hear this quote a lot, whatever I can get away with, right? right. And that's generally leaning on what's most comfortable, 
that's our entire value proposition is saying do that, um, but don't give up on looking sharp, right? Don't be the one in the room that feels a little bit self-conscious, underdressed, sweats, these wrinkles, um, or the other side, you know, wearing a T-shirt when you probably shouldn't be. All right. And so it's fairly straightforward. Um, can we combine the best of both? All right. So let me ask you then, a dress shirt, I, I love this, makes a lot of sense to me. And if I could get away with wearing, yeah, something that feels more like a, yeah, I don't know, a Lululemon uh, you know, athletic top, exactly. it'd be great. So what, what is it about the shirt that gives me that, gives you that performance? Yeah. You know, what we do is we, we kind of compare ourselves to, to chefs in a lot of ways. And so we, we have, you know, a number of products. So for me to reduce the answer to kind of one piece of technology or one trait would be sorting the entire brand. What we think of ourselves is saying there's, you know, millions of ingredients and combinations for those ingredients that we can put together um, it's, it's, it's near infinite to think about what you can do from a construction standpoint, from a fiber standpoint. What we do is we actually start the process by saying, what don't you like about your dress shirt today? Let's pick you, picking that product specifically. And you can start with simple things like hand peeled. I want it to be soft and I want it to be really stretchy. Um, I don't want to go to dry cleaners. I don't want to own an iron. And we put these kind of core uh, important features together and we start to look at all of the different you know, ingredients that might be able to achieve that. And so for us, you, know, you, can, you can see that anywhere from using kind of an ultra-high-gauge printed knit, which is very different from a classic woven on a dress shirt, all the way through stuff like using phase-change materials, which NASA originally patented and developed. Um, and in fact, we're, we're all over NASA's site because of our use of the phase-change materials in dress shirts, helping to regulate your temperature. So it's embedded within the fiber of the dress shirt to actually regulate your temperature by about a degree and a half thermal capacity. So kind of showing you those two examples, I'm just I'm kind of talking through this idea that depending on the garment, uh, you know, different types of dress shirts that we offer, you'll see a different kind of core value set, but all of them reduce down to super soft and stretchy, machine washable, ultra comfortable, easy care. It's the same kind of core needs that were identified in the first place. Yeah. What uh, just to to help our users or help our listeners with the. Uh with where you are now, give us a sense of what the product line is now and maybe some of the price points, what we're looking at. Yeah, for, this for sure. So, like, I mean, it's just the easy way to put it is kind of anything you'd wear to work or beyond, right? So it's anything you'd put on on kind of a Monday morning. So dress shirts, dress black suits for men, uh, similar for women, tops, bottoms, blouses, skirts. We have full suits for women as well, obviously, given the, uh, the note I had on the Guinness World Record earlier. So yeah. um, it does cover kind of the, the entire staple garment. Now, you won't see much of what we look at as traditional fashion. So You'll see kind of muted colorways with us. You'll see a lot of the basics, right? We want to be the 50% of your wardrobe that you wear 80% of the time. Uh, but just to give you an example of price points, you know, a, a dress shirt would normally run you about 115 bucks. Um, a pair of pants, somewhere right in the same range. So we kind of think, uh, you know, well south of premium, we, we like to think accessible uh, to our customer base and uh, and something that, you know, ho- hopefully you kind of treasure as an investment for the long term. Yeah, so the prices are, you know, it, it's not, quite as low as, say, Banana Republic, but it's certainly, you know, it's about what you'd pay in a department store for, for those Different. similar things. Yep. So so not not Spot crazy on. not crazy prices. Um, all right. So you're back in in business school. You've got this this opportunity. Uh, you're excited about it. How, how did you validate the opportunity and how did you get started? You know, I think we, we kind of just, we, we swung a little bit, right? I think at the, at the time there was a lot less kind of theory on entrepreneurship. There was a lot less kind of step-by-step guides. Um, and our professor, a guy named Bill Ouellette, uh, who you may have come across. I know, you know Bill uh, very well. Yeah, yeah terrific, terrific must, guy. Yeah. Must, um, and he's been fantastic. He, he kind of put, uh, at the time we were running two separate teams, um, there were four of us, and he put us together in a room and kind of said, hey, you guys figure it out, but there's no reason that, you know, four students at MIT, uh, all of whom have, you know, backgrounds in engineering or, or this, 
shouldn't work together and bring this to market in a really special way. And uh, and pretty quickly we did. So within a few days, we were kind of taking the prototype pressure that we had on hand and selling them in the cafeteria. And then uh, and spent the next nine months running about 14 iterations of the dress shirt before we launched on Kickstarter in 2012. And what did you launch on Kickstarter and how did it go? Yes, we, we started off with the dress shirt because it just had this kind of cool... Um, one, we just spent so much time building it, but it had yeah. a cool story with kind of dress shirts born from spacesuits, right? With the phase change materials, it was a really fun and easy opening line, or kind of MIT does fashion um, that kind of caught people off guard. So we set out to raise thirty thousand bucks, and that was not, you know, by any means an artificial target. We would have been ecstatic getting thirty thousand, and we ended up selling about four hundred thirty thousand, um, which both taught us a lesson in kind of validation and excitement, and and, and you know, people do want this, but also a lesson in, uh, in, in exhaustion over the next year and bringing them to market and then, uh, and certainly humility when they weren't perfect. So, uh, was certainly a, uh, a, a trying fun time for the company. To get started in. Yeah. I'm going to just underscore a point. I think, you know, this, the Kickstarter, Indiegogo crowdsourcing crowdfunding models, that space has become much more crowded since, since, uh, 2012 or whenever this was, but the, but it's still a really good test of can you at least get enthusiasts uh, to adopt a product? And so I, I, I highly recommend it. I think it's a terrific first step even today, even a much more crowded space. And so you got this resounding re- response, which is, yeah, we, we really like this this proposition. What Was that enough capital to get you going, or was that did you use that endorsement as a way to raise additional capital? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, I, I, I'm going to harp on your last point too. Say, you know, we totally believe in Kickstarter and Indiegogo and crowdfunding. I think there are two myths I'd kind of highlight. One is that it's anything uh, organic or natural, right? I think a lot of people think you just put it up and hope and, and wait. Um, and the second kind of myth is the one you're getting at here from a financial perspective is that you don't have to do your math, right? In, in our case, we didn't. Uh, we didn't do it properly. We didn't do it at the scale. We, we ended up reaching, uh, we ended up losing money on that Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, we probably spent about a half a million bucks to fulfill $430,000 worth of promises. So certainly a hard lesson to learn. So the short answer is yes, without a doubt, we had to raise capital. And we would have been you know, fresh out of money. Um, so we raised a few hundred grand from family and friends right as the campaign was ending. So kind of at the right time, strike while the iron's hot, you've got a lot of great help behind you. So go raise a little bit of capital um, and, and, and use that to put some longer-term fuel behind the brand. Yeah, and I I would I would totally endorse that. If you think you're going to fund your business with Kickstarter, you're sorely, sorely mistaken. I would say even break even doing breaking even is a is a nice nice achievement. Uh, but it's still a fantastic thing to do. I mean, it's a it's a really I think valuable thing to do. But don't confuse it with really financing your business. Um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM. 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Aman Advani, who's the co-founder and president of Ministry of Supply. Um, uh, Aman, so the the next question I've got is, I, I, you know, lots of people have an idea for an apparel company, and I wonder if you can describe what you did in terms of supply chain, and maybe even better would be what you would recommend in terms of setting up a supply chain. And then I suspect there are some complications for you because one of your differentiators is the materials. And so you probably have to source your materials separately. So maybe you talk us through a little bit how the supply chain works, how you ended up making it work, and maybe what mistakes you made along the way. Yeah, yeah I, I appreciate that you separated the question out into uh, how we started the supply chain versus how we would recommend yeah. the supply chain. They're 
two very different answers, as I'm, I'm sure you suspected. Uh, so we, we started off by just honestly walking around the, the fashion district in New York and knocking on doors. And I, I don't mean that figuratively. We were literally just walking around knocking on doors saying, here's the fabric, here's the dress shirt, you know, here's everything in between that you need. Can you just put a sample together so we can start conversations with real suppliers? And we got some kind of uh, sympathetic uh, maker uh, who we're still in touch with today to say yes. And so he built us 30 dress shirts that were terrible, um, not by his fault, but but by ours, um, our naivety kind of biting us a little bit. And uh, But it was a fantastic starting point. We could start to really break down and do tests, right? Understand how your body expels heat, odor, moisture, pressure, strain, how your skin stretches. And by doing all that, which we were really good at, we could then apply it to the dress shirt and say, well, what, what comes out? What needs to change about this? And so we would go through these iterations over and over and over again. I think in hindsight, if we could do it again, and what we would recommend anybody else starting a clothing business is absolutely to find somebody who's already been in it. Um, you know, clothing manufacturing is still an archaic business that relies upon warm introductions. And so there's nothing better than finding someone who's really good at it that's also willing to kind of make an introduction to you, to, to a factory or to, you know, even a smaller factory that they used in the past. We do it all the time. Um, it's good for us because factories enjoy kind of meeting new people yeah. and it's good for entrepreneurs so we can kind of encourage the next crop to come up. And so that would be either just an acquaintance or even an employee or an agent. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Just kind of dig, dig, dig. And you can find someone who works in clothing and kind of work your way to the person in supply chain. Um, you know, get them excited about your brand, pitch them just like you'd pitch an investor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and then ask for that warm intro when the time is right. Yeah. And most of these factories, if I think of dress shirts, I think primarily, well, I don't know where they're made. I know that a lot of them are probably in China, but I'm guessing a lot of them have moved to other parts of Southeast Asia. Is that true of dress shirts or most of them in Southeast Asia? Yeah, you know, I I don't know. I don't know that I have any good volume tips off the top of my head. We did a ton in, in the U.S. when we were starting off and still small batch. Yeah, um, but had had some quality issues as I've, as I've alluded to earlier in kind of 2012, 2013, and so we moved overseas um, between China, Japan, and Taiwan. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the milling being in China and Japan, and a lot of the make being in China. Um, but there's certainly a lot of options out there in terms of who you go with. We yep. just got a really great introduction via uh, uh, some pretty reputable and large companies that said these are the places you want to start if you want to be kind of innovative in the fashion space. All right. Um, the next topic I want to move to is is financing. If if I can believe Crunchbase, you've raised about $9 million. And I, I would guess, I don't know, I have, I have conflicting uh, intuitions on it. On the one hand, I would think that raising venture capital for apparel brands is probably pretty tough. Um, on the other hand, there do seem to be some pretty successful new brands that have emerged. So how did you find the fundraising process to be and how did you end up making it work? Yeah, you know, we, 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 one, I should go ahead and update Crunchbase. It's a good bit more than that, but I, I think it doesn't change the point of your question, which is to say, it's, it's on, un, it's unlike any other business, right? Or I should say, rather, it's a lot like any business. Um, and then all you're trying to do is, is, is sell a, a much larger vision, right? And that's where I think that, uh, you know, in, in Untucket's case, they, they sold a, a, uh, you know, a, a, a vision that was based on historical financials, right? I'm sure early on they, they were probably self-funding or family and friends. In our case, early on, we had a pretty, you know, interesting story and an interesting take that, that was either a terrible idea and, and didn't make sense at all, or had massive market potential, right? Where we could cite players like Lululemon, who created categories themselves. In, the, in their case, you know, you might give them credit for creating athleisure, or at least what we think of it today mm-hmm. in, 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 in discussion. 
And so in our case, it was no different than any other company out there raising capital, whether it be kind of tech, healthcare, it didn't matter. Is this idea that you're pitching a, a vision that can have a massive kind of multiplier of cash in now versus cash out later? Yeah, but it, but the thing, I, if I were an investor, I'd look at this and say, yeah, but it's horrifying working capital. Uh, you got a gazillion sizes and colors. Uh, it just seems like a sort of a logistics nightmare. How how do you overcome those objections? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the first probably way is just to say, yeah, you're right. Um, but if it was easy, everybody would do it. Yeah, right? So I think yeah. in some ways it probably just insulates you a little bit more from, from the field. Right. So I think just as much as those are dirty, hairy disadvantages of the industry, they're also saying, look, we've, we've done a pretty good job at it. Um, yeah. you know, we manage working capital really efficiently. We have a strong supply chain. And so all of a sudden that becomes our competitive advantage over new entrants instead of the other way around. Yeah, actually that's a, that's a really good answer, which is, you know, in an industry where there are so few moats other than brand, as you point out, um, Figuring out how to do something complex efficiently can itself be a moat. So I I, yeah, totally. uh, I agree with that. That's a good insight. All right. So the next topic I want to move to is another one that I'm curious about. There's been uh, a lot of discussion lately about online versus offline and bricks and mortar, the power location, that sort of thing. And, and Lululemon is one of those interesting examples where my understanding is most of their business is direct, but they also have retail stores. Looks like you've made a similar decision. I wonder if you can walk us through that and what your thinking is and what general principles there are there. Yeah, yeah that's a, it's a really good question. I think our business is probably very similar to Lulu's, as you, as you noted. So I'm sure they're kind of two to one retail to online sales, and we're the opposite. We're two to one online versus retail. We've got seven stores around the country. And we really like that ratio. Um, the stores are such an awesome opportunity for us to do exactly what we want to do, which is teach people, educate them on our hypothesis that a new category of clothing should exist and that there's you know, room for it. In fact, there's room for it to take over the incumbents. And, uh, and there's no better place to do that than in person, right, when you can touch, feel, stretch, you know, um, understand, read, talk. Um, you know, staff is, is, is of the best in the country in terms of the education that, that they bring to the table. And so for us, it was kind of a no-brainer. I mean, we, we, you know, sometimes are, are looked at as an online first brand, but the reality is we've always sold in person. And we've always loved selling in person. And our conversion rate is, is nearly 20 times in person what it is online, which is somewhat you know, normal. I shouldn't uh, uh, misguide you there, but, but it, it's special when you see the two channels actually work together or someone can understand the brand in person but then keep shopping online. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a fairly sophisticated way of looking at it, and it's really a, a perspective that says I'm looking at lifetime value, and and not just at the margin on a on a single purchase. But but I do wonder if the stores, even on a more narrow from a more narrow perspective, are are profitable. That is, can you justify brand like yours? Can you justify opening in a store? Just on the basis of its of it of the margin it produces, or do you have to take a lifetime value perspective on it? Yeah, I think I, I really think a lifetime value. So you're 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 digging up skeletons of kind of 2012 era direct you know brand mentality, which was very much spend 150 dollars to attract a hundred dollar customer. Right. Eventually, it'll work itself out. And uh, and there's a lot of companies that died on that methodology, and a few that kind of just barely snuck out. I'm sure you know the ones I'm referring to, and that. Uh, and so for us, I think we, we were caught in that trap early on too, right? We were saying, okay, your, your cost per acquisition doesn't have to be lower than your first purchase profit um, because you'll make it up on the second or third purchase, right? We're that good. Our product's that good. 
Um, but the reality is churn is real and, and working capital and cash conversion cycles are real, real. And so I think what we did pretty early on, fortunately, was switch our mentality away from that and say, look, everything has to be four wall profitable. An individual purchase right, has to be within its own kind of four walls figuratively. Um, but every store has to be four wall profitable. Right? And then everything on top of that is gravy and, and, uh, and magic mask that we can do to justify this multiplier effect that's really hard to track. But if at the very least, you know, the stores are making money, and then we can justify continuing to build the channel. And, and, and that's a position we took on uh, a few years ago and haven't relented since. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I like that logic. And uh, I think it brings good discipline to the retail and operation as well. Um, all right. Last question for you. I, I, I've just poked around a little bit looking at your AI jacket, or I'm not sure you probably have a better name for it than that. But yep, I yep. wonder if you could describe for our listeners the tech in that product and then a little bit the rationale. How far do you think technology of that type is really going to go in apparel? And to what extent is that a um, an attention getter and a vi- sort of a vision product, an aspirational product, as opposed to a, a trend you see that for our future? Yeah, so I mean, I'll, I'll start off by answering that last one. Just in, in our world, in apparel, with working capital, with kind of limited resources, um, nothing can be just an attention getter, yeah. or at least yeah. an unknown attention getter. But it's way too expensive of a marketing stunt. Um, in this case, kind of the initial insight was this idea that we were sharing. You know, we were we were a bunch of people in Boston sharing a big lofty office with a Nest thermostat, and you know, every time someone would walk by it, they change it to their own preference. And so this Nest thermostat, which is supposed to be learning, is not. It's flailing all over the place um, because it's trying to be kind of one-to-many machine learning, which just doesn't work. And so we had this idea that we would actually just create a one-to-one machine learning platform that would create kind of an individual thermostat in the form of a jacket. And so what it does is it takes three uh, sensors. It takes a sensor of the external temperature, internal temperature, and a binary of your motion. So are you moving? Not. Um, you can start to make that more sophisticated, moving, walking, running, of course. Um, but for now, just taking these three variables and start to understand your behavior. So if you tend to run hot, we reset the algorithm to actually turn the jacket on at different temperatures than we would if you tend to run cold. And so the jacket's got 10 watts of power coming out at it. It's powered by a small USB battery, like any size USB battery, actually. I use a larger one to wirelessly charge my phone, too. Um, and it just kind of makes winter uh, a, a lot more tolerable, right? And most importantly, it's waterproof, um, you know, well-insulated, Super, super comfortable, a good kind of tight, uh, sharp fit, you know, that, that, that slim cut, but also has a bunch of stretch to it. And uh, and it's kind of this all-in-one jacket that says it, it's really all that you'll need kind of for the course of the winter. So we sold about 3,000 of these. Uh, they'll be popping up soon at the Museum of Modern Art. Um, all the pre-orders that we took in February will be fulfilling in the next couple of weeks. And so it very much isn't a, uh, a stunt. It's, it's as real as it comes, and it's taken hundreds and hundreds of hours of coding um, of machine learning tests, of building the app around it, of building the Alexa integration, which will come out in just a few weeks, where you could just say, Alexa, heat up my jacket, and uh, and kind of go ahead and preheat it before you go walk the dog. It's very real, and we think it's uh, it's it's here to stay. Wow. You know, I was deeply skeptical, and now I'm convinced I need one. In fact, <laughs> I'm feeling a little chilly right now, so that's really, yeah. really awesome. All right, Amen, uh, give us the—we're uh, uh, we're out of time, but basically just—how's t- it going? It's going really well. I mean, I think we're just, I mean, we're, we're, we're at this point well beyond what we ever expected. Like I said, we weren't entrepreneurs coming into this. We were people who just wanted to build a really great product. And I think we're just so insanely proud of, of, of the quality of product coming out of this. 
let alone the volume, let alone the incredible team, but most importantly that we're building a product that actually changes people's lives for the better. So it's a give, give it a shot, go into a store, check us out online, but, um, but we're having a blast. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Super interesting. Thanks for having me. All right. For more information, go to Ministry of Supply. Just put those three words together, ministryofsupply.com. Coming up, Rel Lavizo Mori will join me to talk about her art-lined luxury streetwear, outerwear and accessories made in collaboration with contemporary artists. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.